Welcome back. We are getting ready for trial coverage at least three weeks of the Murdoch murders trial. It's interesting to go into a trial where we haven't had a ton of information about this case. Lots of speculation, but not a ton of information. So we are all going to be learning together, but there's a lot to catch up on since the last time we talked on the podcast. There is a court hearing that I covered over on YouTube that I'll touch on a little bit and then link down below. But we have a lot to get ready for before this trial kicks off on January 23rd. 2023. So, law nerds, let's go. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. At the beginning of a new year, a lot of us are looking to make changes. Me, I just want to be able to stay consistent, but I completely understand wanting to explore a new way of eating, and a lot of you have been trying keto. With Green Chef, you can make that a little easier on yourself. Green Chef is offering their brand new limited time keto kickoff for 2023. You can find recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, plus meal bundles, at the green market. Keep keto easy and delicious. And what I love about Green Chef is it just delivers right to your door. And you can add things on if you're ordering dinners like their incredible egg bites that have become an absolute favorite for breakfast at our house. So not only are our dinners handled, but breakfast is handled too. The meals are easy to put together and make. So if you haven't tried Green Chef yet, now is the time. Just head over to greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 and use code emilybaker60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Yes, 60% off plus free shipping. Find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. If you are just finding the Murdoch case, I'm going to give a quick primer before we get into kind of the latest of what's happening right before we get to trial and what I am looking for as we start this trial. And then as a former criminal prosecutor, what I anticipate some of the problem areas could be with this trial and what I'm going to be looking for and the questions that I'm going to be looking to see how they answer, because we're going to be learning along with the jury as this streams live. So on June 7th, 2021, Maggie and Paul Murdoch were murdered on their sprawling 1,700-acre South Carolina hunting estate Moselle, well, on at Moselle. A year later, Alec Murdoch was indicted and arrested for the murders. That trial begins again on January 23rd, 2023 in Colton County, South Carolina. Now, we've talked about Alec Murdoch. Look, it's spelled Murdoch. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce it Murdoch. I know that's how to pronounce it. It's it's Alec Murdoch. It's very, there's a lot of hard CK sounds going on. Um, I make other hard CK sounds when I talk about this case because there are cursy words abound when I talk about it. There has been a lot of activity before this trial gets started. There have been a number of motions in limine, a most recent court order. And yeah, we're going to get into all of those today. So we will go through the latest motions, but that's the background on just this trial. There is a much more in-depth background to everything going on with the Murdochs because it's a lot. There are other investigations. There are now over a hundred criminal charges facing Alec Murdoch, including a most recent indictment for tax crimes, which we should just we should just talk about right now, real fast. As the motions in Limine were going on in December for the murder trial, well, there were more tax evasion. Well, there were initial tax evasion charges filed against Alec Murdoch. More financial crime charges is what I meant to say, because a lot of these indictments, the now upward of 100, a lot of these charges are already for financial crimes. 
And we're going to talk about that more as we talk about what the prosecutor's theory is with regard to this case and what we learned from that court hearing that I covered in depth over on YouTube with commentary over the court hearing. So with that, on December 16th, nine new charges dropped, alleging in multiple counts tax evasion. So during the years of 2011 to 2019, prosecutors are alleging that Alec Murdoch failed to report over $6.9 million in income and owes the state of South Carolina over $486,000 in taxes. Now, there are over 100 charges across <laughs> more indictments than I care to count because they don't just do things in one indictment. They are in multiple indictments. Even the murder case is in multiple indictment numbers per charge. So it's quite a substantial amount of indictments. But then some of them have multiple charges. I don't understand. They're all in different counties. It's wildness. There's no consolidation of these charges. So there's over $9 million in monies owed to victims and now the state in all of these charges. So it's interesting to see now a failure or an allegation of a failure to report over $6.9 million in income over that eight-year span. And of course, whenever we see financial crimes, I'm always waiting for the tax shoe to drop. Financial crime? Well, if they're alleging somebody stole, it's generally the, the case that they also didn't report that money to the IRS because then things wouldn't match up, and that could be a problem as well. So generally, those things, um, those monies aren't reported to tax authorities, and then you can end up here. So that's where we are. Look, folks, this is not legal advice, but maybe just pay your taxes because there are a few things in life that are certain, and the IRS will get theirs. It just might take them some time. So they will, the tax man will find a way. So I was not stunned that these um, these additional indictments dropped. It's just very interesting the way they kind of roll out um, grand jury after grand jury after grand jury. I'm wondering if a grand juror will end up is it the same grand jury? Do they have one grand jury impaneled for the Murdoch cases and they just call them up? It's like, hey, we're going to meet once a month back here, more charges. Is it just one grand jury? Are they reseating grand juries? Some places you serve grand jury um, for a year, some places for six months, and you hear multiple cases. So is there maybe one grand jury that's hearing all of these cases? I don't know. I'm, I would sure be interested to find out. But then they are in different counties. So or each county convening their grand juries? I don't, I have questions. I have questions about how this is working, but there are quite a lot of indictments. I think that's all we need to know. But there have been a lot of other announcements, including the announcement on December 5th that prosecutors in this case are seeking life without parole. Now, South Carolina does have the death penalty. That was on the table until December 5th when prosecutors announced that they would not be going forward with the death penalty, which is late for me to announce this. In other states, we're covering the cases in Idaho. Um, there is a much shorter time period after charging with which to announce whether or not that is what prosecutors will be seeking. So it seemed late to me that we had gotten up to the month before trial and this decision had not been made. But of course, we do have defense attorneys um, that are well incapable of handling a case like that. And after we thank one of today's sponsors, we will talk a little bit about who these attorneys are. As you're listening to this episode, I know you're going, how in the world is this lawyer doing all of this stuff? It's absolutely wild because we just can't foresee what people are going to do. And it's a perfect time to talk about cybersecurity. I know it 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 just is. Well, anytime's the time to talk about cybersecurity because you know me. I spend a lot of my time online. It's where I do my shopping and where I talk to y'all. But there are lots of different ways that your information can get attacked online, not just password attacks and phishing, but also things like malware and malvertising. Malvertising where they are trying to get you to click that link to get things on to your computer. 
But Nord has solutions to help with everything from ransomware to those phishing attacks that just try to get your information by spoofing a site so you're not sure, you think it's going to be okay, you think the link is safe, and it's not. If you have not tried NordVPN yet, now is the time. You can use my link down below to get a bonus plus one month. Just go to nordvpn.com slash Baker and use code Emily D. Baker to get that bonus plus one month. And don't forget, Nord has a 30-day money-back guarantee. So go ahead and give it a try for yourself. It is time to get your online life locked down. All right, let's get back to Murdaugh. And again, a huge thank you to our sponsors who allow this content to continue as an independent content creator. It's such, it's such a, a wonderful thing to have um, so many that are supportive of what we do here on The Emily Show. So the defense team, let's take a look at these attorneys. First is Richard Harputlian, Dick Harputlian. I have seen him described across multiple media reports as one of the most powerful individuals in South Carolina. I have seen multiple reports on his record, his resume. I have looked at his the things he says about himself. He has, uh, especially with this case, been on television, given quite a lot of interviews. But he has more than 30, 30 years experience as a trial attorney. He has worked as a prosecutor. He has worked as a criminal defense attorney. He has worked as a civil litigator. Sometimes we see that civil litigator come out a little bit in court, which is interesting to me because when I'm looking back at his his record um, and the things that are reported about him, he has done quite a substantial amount of criminal cases. But then when I'm looking at him in court, some of the things he's arguing, I'm like, this is not civil discovery, my guy. What? What? So I just wonder if he has in recent years, been focusing much more on civil cases than criminal. He was the Fifth Circuit's chief homicide prosecutor and prosecuted hundreds of murder cases, including 12 death penalty cases. So this is not an individual that had a brief career as a prosecutor. This is someone who had an extensive career as a prosecutor. He has also defended one of those prosecutions on appeal before the Supreme Court, which most prosecutors have not done. He also prosecuted the Donald Peewee um, Gaskins case in South Carolina, which is reported to be South Carolina's most notorious serial killer, a case from 1983. He has also served as a state senator, the head of the state Democratic Party, and more. He The, the man is very busy, clearly, um, and he is not a stranger to the inside of a courtroom, which you can see. He definitely loves to have his moment in court. He always seems very aware um, of how the case is being reported, uh, what is being said about the case. He accuses prosecutors of leaking things to the media or saying things for the media. Prosecutors accuse him of saying things for the media. It reminds me of being at a court hearing for Britney Spears, but with much more serious import um, uh, because of the way the attorneys are like, they're just saying this because there's reporters here. <sighs> this trial. I don't know how it's going to go as fast as they think it's going to go because these attorneys, the motions in limine haven't been decided yet, and both sides um, will have their say. And the prosecution's not going to back down to Harputlian having his moment to make record on top of make record on top of make record. And the judge has been very patient. But once a jury's in the building, that could change. Let's talk about co-counsel. Co-counsel Jim Griffin also more than 30 years of experience in both civil and criminal litigation at both the state and federal level. Interestingly enough, Jim Griffin graduated from University of South Carolina School of Law in 1987. Alec Murdoch graduated from the same law school three years later in 1990. What's interesting for my audience in Southern California, you will throughout this trial um, and reporting on this trial hear people refer to USC. They don't mean that one. They, they mean the University of South Carolina. So USC School of Law is widely discussed. They do not 
they they mean South Carolina. So it was something that took me a minute to get used to as being someone who grew up in Southern California that I am used to USC referring to the Cardinal and Gold over there at the University of Southern California. So it it takes my brain a minute, but I'm not surprised to see that Jim Griffin went to law school around the same time as Alec Murdoch. It seems like most of the powerful attorneys in this state um, and a, quite a substantial amount of the judges went to uh, USC School of Law. The prosecutor, Creighton Waters, I saw a uh, really funny article that was like, the, pro- the prosecution's office, you know, the attorney general's office, uh, will not give us a rundown on this attorney. I'm like, of course they won't. <laughs> they don't have a website like private attorneys who are working in civil. They're not going to tell you about all the things they've done and all the people they prosecuted. But from what reporters have gathered, he's been a prosecutor for over 24 years and has recently been working on large, uh, very large white-collar crime cases. So I'm not surprised that he is involved in this case. It is the prosecution's theory, or at least it was the last time that they were in court, that this is a white-collar crime case that culminated in homicides and not the other way around. And then the judge, of course, is Clifton Newman. If you have not watched my live coverage of court, um, you will not know how tickled I am by this judge. He is delightful. This judge is absolutely delightful. He has a very calm presence and demeanor in court. He is not um, rattled by the sometimes showmanship of the trial attorneys. We'll see how these attorneys act in front of a jury. I can't wait to see the difference between the disposition before like the media and the cameras without a jury there and whether it will shift when there is a jury there. Is the jury persona of the attorneys a little bit different? And defense attorneys have a little bit more room to kind of bang the table and be like, this is an outrage than prosecutors do. Prosecutors bring the weight of the state. Um, Though it's interesting when the defense attorney has also been a state senator that maybe it feels like they're also bringing the weight of the state. It's an odd circumstance that I have never encountered. It feels very, I don't know. It feels like something out of a out of a John Grisham novel, frankly. But I wonder if that will shift a little in front of a jury, if we'll see the theatrics kind of toned down. Or will we see it toned up? I don't know. So Judge Newman has had this very calming presence in court. Um, he sits on this massive, like leather-looking chair behind the bench that I am delighted by. And he has such a delightful, just Southern South Carolina draw, like just this Southern draw that's different than like a Southern, like South Nashville, Georgia draw. It is more of a South Carolina, Virginia, South East Coast draw. Me trying to describe regional dialects badly. I am not a linguist, but I am delighted by regional variances. I'm delighted when we cover cases in Minnesota and occasionally you will hear something and it's just so delightfully regional. Um, so I'm del- I'm absolutely delighted by this judge. I look forward to seeing him this entire trial. I have very much liked what I've seen from him in court. Though um, in just the last few weeks, his adult son, um, the son that's in his 40s, had passed away. And so I, I just can't help but wonder how difficult this trial is going to be for this judge. Um, Of course, judges are professionals. Of course, lawyers are well-practiced at putting their own life and feelings and and things going on aside. Very, very used to it. Um, It's something you, it's, it's something one encounters a lot in one's career in court, but it's got to be surreal presiding over the trial of someone accused of killing family members. I'm so close to one's own loss. It just, it it sits with me. Um, but has said that the trial is going to go forward. This trial has been um, set out for this period of time. And there's a lot of really big rulings that this judge still has to make. So it will be interesting to see. But I, I have absolutely found this judge to be delightful. And I expect um, that this judge will keep the attorneys in line and keep this trial running on time what we don't know about this case yet is whether or not jury selection will be televised. We know that once trial starts, that this court should start around 9 a.m. most days. That's 9 a.m. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry, West Coast. That is 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's early for me, too. Look, I love a trial on Central Standard Time. I love a court that starts at 10 a.m. Is that the reality most of the time? No. So court will be starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Are we on? No, we're not on daylight time. We're on standard time, EST. So I will be starting my live streams uh, just a few minutes before that and streaming coverage day to day, gavel to gavel. What time will this court end? I don't know, but I'm going to call the clerk because I've not seen it reported anywhere. And I'm curious if there are we a four o'clock court? We have 5 p.m. court. What? Please don't tell me that you're running through like 7 p.m. Oh, I was caught very off guard by some of those days covering the Brooks trial. I was there were days I was definitely not prepared for how late that court ran, just based on my own experience working in Los Angeles, where uh, at 4.30, court's done. Especially criminal courts, because people have to be transported. The court reporters are done for the day. Like, things are done. Things are just done. So with that, I will keep you apprised of the court schedule. If you want to watch that along with me, it'll be over on YouTube at the Emily D. Baker. If you want to be alerted each day, I will be giving out text crew information just from your mobile phone, textemily.com. We are just switching over providers, so we will have new information for you soon. And then we will be up and running to give you trial notifications. Of course, you can always join the Lawnard community at lawnardsunite.com because those notifications will come to your email when the YouTube notifications don't work. And of course, I do my best to update on social media um, what the schedule will be. So all of those places at the Emily D. Baker to keep you in the loop. I intend to start Monday. The court has not yet decided if they will be allowing jury selection. Speaking of jurors, let's go to the court's order that came out right at the end of December. Now, this is stamped from December 29th, 2022, signed by Judge Clifton Newman. Considering the nature of the case and in the interest of justice, the court finds that an order should be issued prohibiting the disclosure of the identity of and certain identifying information pertaining to jurors summoned to appear. It is therefore ordered that all parties, counsel, court personnel, agents, employees, law enforcement, and media shall be and are hereby barred and restrained from disclosing the name, address, employment, and any other personal identifying information of any juror summoned in the above trial. The order does not prohibit the internal use of juror information by the court and counsel for case preparation. All jurors shall be only identified by juror number. This order shall remain in effect unless and until modified by further order. Any violation is punishable by contempt of court. I don't doubt this court will throw someone in jail. I don't doubt it for a second uh, if somebody messes with juror, uh, juror sanctity. So this non-disclosure issue, uh, this non-disclosure order that is issued really protects the identity of jurors if the questions during juror selection are televised. And based on this order, they may not be because they ask jurors things like, where do you work? Do you know anyone involved in law enforcement? And trying to cut back and forth between um answers that are okay and answers that are not okay. And someone might answer, oh, well, in my job, I do this. And then it's now out there. So with this non-dissemination order or non-disclosure order, I am inclined to believe that the process of Wadir will not be open to the public and will not uh, be televised. But I'm still optimistic that maybe we'll get to see some of Wadir. Wadir can be tremendously informative. It, it is one of the most important parts of the trial for the attorneys to pick a jury that can be fair. And in this trial, it's going to be fascinating to see how many of these jurors know Alec Murdoch, whose family has kind of been a, a fixture and a stalwart in this county for over a hundred years. This is a prominent and well-known family and I imagine that those who don't know him directly know of him and his family. Then this is also a media case. So finding a jury and working around those issues, I'm fascinated for. But then again, I really wanted to see jury selection in that uh, Kardashian Black China 
trial where people were like, no, nah, I don't like them. I don't, I don't want to hear their case. Or I do know of them. I watch their show. I wanted to see what people had to say and how they answered those questions. I'm deeply interested, but if the if the public will be allowed in, the cameras will be allowed in, I just worry that they won't be. And then we will start trial coverage likely on Wednesday when uh, the jury is picked and we will just have to wait and see what information we get from the jury. I believe that what we will get from the media is maybe just jury numbers. Some media might disclose uh, gender of jurors and that might be about it because there's some arguments about what is and is not personal identifying information. So this court is going to be very mindful of protecting the jury and just trying to find a jury that can be fair in this case is going to take some work. Speaking of work, you know what doesn't take work? I'm going to tell you with our next sponsor. Y'all know I love a great manicure, but sometimes things are way too busy to get to the salon and you just need great looking nails and you need them now. Or, you know, Housewives is on and you really just need to be at home so that you can watch Housewives. I know it's a lighter topic than what we're talking about today, but you can make that salon quality manicure happen at home quickly with our sponsor, Olive and June. Olive and June has everything you need for a custom manicure in one box. And you can customize that with your choice of up to six polishes. They don't chip and last seven days or more. And it breaks down to just about $2 a manicure, which is way less than going to the salon. And to make it easy, Olive and June has their incredible quick dry, which dries in just about a minute and lasts for five plus days. So get your whole manicure ready to go with your manicure in a box. It is easy to get it done at home. Just visit oliveandjune.com slash lawnard for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash lawnard, L-A-W. N-E-R-D for 20% off your first Manny system. All right, let's get back to today's show. I said that we would also talk about the motions in lemonade. And if the motions in lemonade, yes, the motions in lemonade. And if you followed my coverage of the Depp v. Heard case, you heard us talk about these pretrial motions quite a lot. They were much easier to obtain because the state of Virginia is like, I don't want you calling our clerk's office. We're just putting them on the internet for you. <laughs> much easier to get than these in the Murdoch case that have been a little bit more challenging. But the motions in Limini have um, have been a matter of conversation since the last court hearing that I covered where they were arguing about what was the motive and um, a matter of blood spatter. There is a shirt that Alec Murdoch was wearing, um, presumably the night that this happened because they tested it for blood spatter and there's discrepancies in the test based on what was argued in court. We do, still don't have a ruling with regard to which experts will testify, but we know there will be conversations in this trial about blood spatter. It is widely reported that Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch were murdered by different weapons. It's when we get to talking about challenges the prosecution has in this case, that is a big one. Paul was uh, reportedly killed at close range with a shotgun, and Maggie was reportedly shot multiple times with an assault rifle. Those are not the same thing. It'll be difficult for the state to explain a theory of how one person did this um, and how one person, what the timing was of someone doing that questions that will be in a jury's mind. So in their motions prior to trial, the state is seeking to introduce motive evidence. And in their very kind of thorough and argued out motive, it was, this is everything that's gone on with Alec Murdoch financially, including and back to um, bad land deals that set him kind of behind the eight ball financially and led to the alleged stealing from clients and, and all the rest of it, including stealing from his own law firm and an alleged opioid addiction. 
I don't know if we even say alleged when his lawyers gone on TV and said, this is the cause of all of this. So I don't know anymore. But he does have drug crimes in some of the indictments. So we're just going to go with alleged to be safe. But his attorney has disclosed an opioid addiction. So the prosecution said in their arguments and reportedly in their initial motions as well that this these were financial crimes that culminated in a murder. So they want to seek that to show the jury why would this seemingly upstanding member of the public suddenly just turn around and, and murder their wife and son. These are staggering allegations. And a jury, though motive does not need to be proven to prove murder, you don't have to show why someone did it. Um, you kind of do in this case just because a jury is going to be like, but why would anyone do that? You have to explain to me how this goes down. Why would an upstanding member of society, or seemingly so, um, pillar of the community, or seemingly so, close-knit family, or seemingly so, how does this go down? Um, Though this family, I will say, by looking at the timeline, tragedy is never far behind when looking at the timeline of this case. And the, the people connected to this family who have passed away. And then with that, the financial scandal that has come from that, not just from the boat accident case that killed Mallory Beach, but also back to um, the maybe now suspicious death of Gloria Satterfield, who has been exhumed for investigations to continue, then the theft of money from her son's just all of it. So with with all of that, a jury is going to want a bit of an answer. Why? And the prosecution says, look, we have to get into the alleged financial crimes and we have to get in really not just to the crimes, but to the facts underlying the crime, that this was the financial circumstance. This is the world that was closing around Alec Murdoch after the Mallory Beach boat accident and the criminal charging of the son who was killed, Paul, the invest, the civil cases into that, the investigations into that, um, the allegations. These probably won't come up in trial, but we'll see that Alec Murdoch was at the hospital that night trying to talk to other kids that were involved in this boat accident and telling them basically don't say anything. That all came out in depositions uh, before Paul Murdoch was charged with boating under the influence uh, causing death, leading to that crash. And then, interestingly enough, as Paul Murdoch's boating under the influence um, causing death case was going forward, who was the defense attorney that was hired? Well, it was Dick Harputlian. So when we look at this case and how interconnected it is, there is some allegation that the boat incident may have caused or may have partly caused Alec Murdaugh's financial world to crumble and lead to these homicides or his decision to commit these uh, homicides. And Dick Harputlian was the lawyer for Paul Murdoch, who is the victim in this case. But I still don't see how it's not a conflict because that attorney-client privilege still extends, um, even though Paul Murdoch has been killed. It's interest. It's an interesting question to me that there's no one around to raise. His brother, his surviving brother, is not going to raise it. His father is on trial for his murder, and his mother has also been murdered. It's who is going to raise the issue, except for maybe me asking questions about how any of this is is okay because it seems like this attorney has knowledge that of the victim in this case that maybe. Um, maybe is a problem. Maybe it's not. I I don't know. Maybe it's just me being overly cautious and that's maybe possible. It's just an odd circumstance to me that this was the attorney who was Paul Murdoch's attorney in the um, voting under the influence case and is now representing the person who's alleged to have killed his former client. It's an odd, odd circumstance, but there's nothing about this. It's not an odd circumstance to be completely fair. So the government, the prosecution, the state's attorney, the attorney general, you will hear me use all of these things synonymously, wants to bring in 
the facts underlying all the financial to show motive. The defense wants to keep all that out and is saying, this is the trial of a homicide. This is not the trial of like 99 financial crimes. And so it's just kind of a circus to bring all of that in. Now, the defense is asking to keep that out, but the defense wants to introduce polygraph evidence, not seemingly of the defendant based on everything I've read, though who knows, um, but of Curtis Edward Smith. Curtis Edward Smith, and we're not going to do a deep dive into who in the world is Curtis Edward Smith, but Curtis Edward Smith is an individual who was hired to, said he was hired to shoot Alex Murdoch by Alex Murdoch. He is in custody with a plethora of charges against him, including the suicide for hire scheme that Alec Murdoch is also charged with in the alleged hit that he put out on himself um, in an alleged insurance scam so that his remaining son would get a $10 million payout. So this happened as, as the rest of the financial crimes were unwinding and he was facing additional indictments the day after his law firm had terminated him when really the world was collapsing even more, that is when this took place. So Curtis Edward Smith has given interviews. He is pending, he is pending his trials on all on all of his own charges, uh, narcotics charges, and then the suicide for hire charges. But the defense has said that he took a polygraph, um, that he failed the polygraph, and they want to ask if Curtis Edward Smith testifies about was he at the property and perhaps introduce third-party guilt evidence. Like, hey, this should be beyond, you know, you've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but there's this other person over here and they are seeking to introduce that. And of course, the prosecution is seeking to have that kept out. None of these motions have been ruled on yet. And we're just going to take a real quick look at the state's responsive motion and the state's motion to exclude the polygraph evidence, because those are the ones that I have. So let's look at this real quick, and I'm going to try to get the rest of the motions before it starts trial, but we should we should have those rulings, and we should know what those rulings are before trial starts, though. As you saw in Depp v. Heard, sometimes these are continued discussion, so even if the court rules this can't come in yet, there are things that can be done to open the door so that those things can then come in, even if they were previously ruled out. This is the state's motion to exclude evidence related to polygraph. A polygraph examination is a procedure in which a subject is measured for certain physiological and psychological reactions while responding to questions in a controlled environment. The polygraph machine is not a quote-unquote lie detector, nor does the operator who interprets the graph detect quote-unquote lies. Rather, the machine records physical responses from which an examiner may draw inferences about whether the examinee is being deceptive or otherwise motivated by a sense of guilt or some other emotion. There is no consensus that polygraph evidence is reliable as a measure of deception. Indeed, quote, to this day, the scientific community remains extremely polarized about the reliability of polygraph techniques. I mean, I enjoy them when they do them on things like Real Housewives. Scientific polarization as to the polygraph's reliability presents a twofold problem to the introduction of polygraph results in criminal trials. First, the polygraph evidence could be inaccurate. And second, by its very nature, polygraph evidence may diminish the jury's role in making credibility determinations, which is an interesting argument, but a fair one, because essentially the jury is the lie detector. The jury is supposed to sit there and look at the testimony of a witness and then determine whether they believe that person. And then they're continuing to weigh testimony against other evidence they're presented and other witnesses they're presented to make that determination of, is someone being truthful? How did these events go down? And in a criminal trial, did these events go down the way the prosecution said? And did the person sitting in the defendant's chair do them? And if they did do them, did they did the prosecution prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? So they say juries may give excessive weight to the opinions of a polygrapher and improperly cede their critical function in determining the credibility of witnesses. 
Thus, the general rule is that no mention of a polygraph test should be placed before the jury. And then they cite cases where those propositions are come from. They're talking about the general rule applying to both the state and the defense. It said, despite the inadmissibility of polygraph, counsels for defendant have endeavored mightily to explore the subject. This case is going to get snappy. It's even snappy in the writing. Defendant in, uh, counsels for defendant endeavored mightily to explore the subject and inaccurately at that in a highly publicized filing on October 14th, 2022. As such, the state expects defendant to attempt to broach the subject at trial by any means necessary. Now, that October 14th, 2022 filing was a motion to compel the state to turn over information. Accordingly, the state asked the court to order the exclusion of any reference to polygraph or any items involving any particular polygraph test, including, but not limited to, any inquiry by counsel or reference by counsel during summation, argument, opening statement, closing argument, any objections, witness examination, or any actions in front of the jury which expresses, implies, or even faintly suggests the existence or non-existence of any polygraph examinations because of the exceedingly high probability of a mistrial in the event such an order is not properly obeyed. The state further requests the court set forth and communicate in advance severe personal consequences for contempt of such order. Oh, they don't trust the defense attorney not to try to slip this in at all. The state would respectfully request an in-camera review by the court before any such evidence may be deemed relevant or admissible uh, in this case. So in-camera being um, in, in chambers outside the presence of the jury. So the, the state's attorney is uh, very, very much asking to reduce the admission of any reference, any whiff, any faint grasp of a polygraph. And we can go look real quick at the um, the highly publicized motion. But first, we're going to look at the motion to exclude evidence related to third-party guilt. We've seen this in other criminal trials that I've covered as well. The case law that they're citing states, quote, an orderly and unbiased judicial inquiry as to the guilt or innocence of a defendant on trial does not contemplate that such defendant be permitted by way of defense to indulge in conjectural inferences that some other person may have committed the offense for which he is on trial, or by fanciful analogy to say to the jury that some other than he is more probably guilty. Accordingly, the state respectfully requests the exclusion of any reference to any items involving any third-party guilt, including, but not limited to, any inquiry by counsel and or any reference by counsel during summation, argument, opening statement, closing argument, any objections, witness examination, or any actions in front of the jury which alleges any specific instance of third-party guilt unless and until an in-camera review. So the prosecution is trying to keep the defense on a <laughs> kind of a judicial short leash of you cannot, there is shit that you cannot say. The thing is, if they do bring in someone who could have been there at the time and they're able to question that person, then that is a different story, which is why there's room for that in-camera review. So taking a look at the motion to compel filed by Alex Murdoch's attorney on October uh, in October 2022, we're going to just take a look real quick at what they're saying about this polygraph evidence, because this is going to come up. I am sure the judge is going to have to rule on it. On June 7th, 2021, Alec Murdoch's wife, Maggie, and youngest son, Paul, were murdered at the family property at Moselle in Colton County. Alex's shock and grief exacerbated his narcotics addiction. And on September 4th, 2021, he asked his drug dealer, Curtis Eddie Smith, to shoot him in the head so his oldest son, Buster, would receive a life insurance payout. Smith agreed and shot Alex in the head, but the bullet grazed Alex's skull and did not kill him. Smith was charged with shooting Alec Murdoch in the head as a part of a conspiracy to assist Alec in committing suicide. Smith has also been charged with narcotics trafficking. The state assumed Alec guilty of the murders before 
It's interesting to me that they called the defendant by his first name throughout the, okay. I mean, okay. It's interesting to me that they're not calling him Mr. Murdoch, but okay. The state assumed Alec guilty of the murders before reviewing any evidence, but failed to find evidence supporting that assumption despite an investigation lasting more than one year. That is bold. Nevertheless, on July 14th, 2022, the attorney general caved to intense public interest in this case and indicted Alec with the murders. According to the state, Alec acted alone. Look, if they're just caving to intense public pressure and they don't have the evidence to back it up, that's going to be a real big, real big problem. During those 13 months between the murders and the indictment of Alec, however, the state sporadically investigated Smith's role. On September 7th, 2021, SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, executed a search warrant at Smith's home in Walterboro for evidence related to his role in the September 4th shooting of Alec. Well, yeah. And on or about September 8th, 2021, search warrants were served regarding uh, Smith's cell phone and cell phone service providers. The warrant affidavits state Smith stated he deleted his call logs and text messages several times during the day. On May 5th, almost a year after the murders of Maggie and Paul, SLED agents interviewed Smith about Maggie and Paul's murders. A SLED agent, Captain Brian Jones, interviewed Smith for 54 minutes before the polygraph. After nearly 40 minutes of preliminary explanations and small talk, Captain Jones stated, Eddie, what's your understanding of why you're here today? To which Smith responded, so I can, so I can y'all can I, I can do this here, referring to the polygraph test. Smith then continued unprompted by the question to proffer an alibi. I know I was nowhere near the place where Maggie and Paul got killed at. Then he was asked, what do you know already about Paul and Maggie's death? To which he responded with a detailed story blaming Paul and an unnamed groundskeeper. And this is what the defense says. He says the defense, again, is going to be pulling this from reports that they've already been turned over. I heard that Maggie had a thing going on with the groundskeeper, which I never met him, don't know his name, and Paul went down into one of the barns and caught him, and he, and he got upset, and he went and got his rifle and was hollering and screaming. His mama, his mama was running, and she fell down and got up, he shot her in the ass and the bullet came out the top of her head and then he turned to the groundskeeper guy, but the groundskeeper already went to his truck and got a shotgun. Captain Jones then asked Smith where he was that night and Smith said he was at home with many convenient alibi witnesses. Smith was prepared to detail his alibi. There's people in my house till about 9.15, 9.30 that night anyway. Uh, Steve Hudson was there. Uh, Donna, she was there at the house. You know, she said we slept together and we worked on a Peterbilt truck that day and helped Kevin put in a number four injector. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what a number four injector is, um, I don't know why he was talking about Donna and that she said that they slept together if they didn't slip together. Um, there's a lot of interesting detail in that stream of consciousness. Captain Jones asked Smith if he shot Maggie or Paul, and he said no repeatedly. Captain Jones then told Smith the questions that would be asked during the polygraph, and after more small talk began the examination. It says Smith failed. The polygraph report notes, quote, responses indicative of attempted Deception were noted in response to the following questions. Did you shoot either of those people at that property on Moselle Road? Did you shoot either of those people at that property on Moselle Road last June? Were you present when either of those people were shot at the property on Moselle Road? In other words, Smith lied when asked, did you shoot Maggie or Paul? Lied when asked the same question a second time and lied when asked if he was present when they were shot. The camera recording of the polygraph examination briefly captures the results on Captain Jones's laptop showing deception. For example, when Captain Jones asked, did you shoot either of those people at the property at Moselle Road? Smith indicated no. Uh, the apparent result when Smith gave that lie can be seen in the below screenshot showing the laptop. 
the, and then they've got timestamps noted. Um, and they're saying that the screenshot purports to show a spike. It's very hard to see from a court filed photocopy of a screenshot, but they have a screenshot of the laptop with magnification. The spike shows Smith deceptive response when he denies murdering Maggie and Paul. After examination, Captain Jones told Smith he showed deception when answering questions dealing with the Moselle property incident. Smith immediately responded, I got plenty of people to tell you I was at home. I was nowhere near, Smith continued. I could have, I could have been there, I, or I, could, I couldn't have been there. I couldn't have flew there and got there fast enough to commit the murders because Steve was at my house till 9.15, 9.20. When Captain Jones pressed Smith for an explanation, Smith insisted, ain't no way in hell you can put anybody can put me there. And Eddie Smith was 35 miles away to that place. He also denied having direct knowledge about the murders. I didn't have no knowledge about it. Captain Jones continued, it does look like you've got some direct knowledge or some participation in the murders. When he pressed Smith with, I think you're leaving something out, Smith became agitated, assist, insisting I wasn't there. There ain't no way, shape, or form. Nobody can put me there. I was not there. Smith provided three alibi witnesses, and then it names them. It did not appear Sled ever interviewed um, Donna following the failed polygraph examination, footnote one. If Sled did interview her, the motion seeks to compel production of the interview. They're like, and if they did talk to her, let us know. Sled did interview the other two, neither of whom provide a compelling alibi in part because Sled waited two weeks before interviewing them, giving Smith an opportunity to tell them what to say. Sled interviewed, and then it talks about the other two interviews. We will see if those individuals get called at trial. And then it talks about why they believe the polygraph should be allowed and the state should provide more information. It says the state's failure to provide Smith's polygraph data reports uh, reviewing his polygraph examination, evidence seized from his home, or to provide interview records for an asserted alibi witness, assuming Sled bothered to interview the witness, meets every prong of a Brady violation. And then it goes through why those should be compelled. Um, what's interesting is that the state is like, this is just more public grandstanding, and then said these, the cell phone and all of that data was taken in connection with a different crime. It was not an investigation with regard to this crime, but clearly the questions on the polygraph do go to this murder. So it'll be interesting to see what the judge says. It will be very interesting to see if this individual who is purported to be on the witness list is called as a witness and what they're able to say, because their attorney is going to be there saying, there's very little you can answer, sir. It's going to be interesting. But they compelled this. They asked the court to compel the state to turn this over, and the state is trying to keep this information out. So, uh, Curtis Eddie Smith testifying at trial is going to be a very interesting thing. Now, he was very open in interviews given to television about being hired by about Alec Murdoch asking him to shoot him. So he's talked about his involvement in some of the things he's charged with. So whether he'll choose to tell everything or whether he will choose to plead the fifth um, for his own benefit or whether he will plead guilty to those crimes this week before he testifies so that he can testify with no other charges pending against him if the prosecution offers him that, we will see. It's a mystery to me at this point because that hasn't happened yet. Final thoughts. There are some big questions in this case. Of course, the, you can see the direction the defense is going in this. The defense is going with this was public pressure to, you know, put these murders on someone. So they arrest, you know, Alec Murdoch, who is an upstanding. I mean, it's going to be hard for them to argue upstanding with the amount of indictments he's facing because it'll just open the door for the prosecution to be like, ha all of this other stuff. But who is a a father and husband and and. Well, he's been disbarred now. Can't argue he's an attorney. It's going to be interesting to see what they argue. But this this individual has no motive to do these things. Might also open the door to the state saying, ha but all these financial crimes. But if they stick to the evidence and not the grandstanding, what we know publicly is that there are two different weapons used. We, we have seen reports that both uh, both victims are in relatively the same location which, again, is going to be difficult because 
I don't know. Well, does someone stand frozen if they see another one of their family members murdered by a family member? Or do they run? I don't know. Um, we have a shotgun involved, so we're going to have to have a conversation. The evidence is going to have a conversation either way about blood spatter. That is just going to be a part of the conversation at trial. Um, what Alec Murdoch was wearing that night, but he wasn't arrested that night. What was he wearing when police showed up? Um, because all of that would have been taken into taken into evidence. But how long until police showed up? Was there time for him to get rid of anything? Was the house ever short searched? Were the grounds ever searched? Um, were weapons ever found? Were, were there tire tracks coming in and out of the property? How many of them? Did they match the cars that were already there? Um, what about footprints? Like, what if, what if, what if? Was it raining? Was it not? All those kinds of questions. But the two different weapons are going to be a difficult thing for the prosecution to, to answer. If they collected, it seems like they collected Alec Murdoch's clothing that night. They're going to have lots of questions about um, blood and how much blood and if there was blood and if he had time to take off over layers, like if he was wearing uh, multiple layers of something, could he have taken them off and ditched those somewhere and that that leaves a base layer that has less on it? Was that base layer appropriate for the weather that evening, et cetera? So there are definitely questions here, and I probably have more, but we don't have a lot of information. How much information about the financial crimes will the judge let the prosecution get into? At some point, is it overkill? And remember, what the court has to balance is, is it more prejudicial to the defendant than probative? Um, not just is it relevant. Obviously, it has to be relevant first, but is it going to help explain motive? But at what point does it become too much. But because we're talking about financial crimes and not necessarily crimes of violence, there there might be a little different calculus for the judge of saying, well, we've got a little leeway to see how this explains it, but stealing money from clients and and a a narcotic addiction doesn't explain maybe all, well, killing your wife and son and maybe everything that's going on here. So the defense, it will give them more to argue against but it also makes it much harder for Alec Murdoch himself to testify with the amount of pending charges he has against him. At this point, I don't expect him to testify. We'll see what happens when opening arguments begin a week from when this is released, or at least they're expected to begin a week from when this is released. So uh, stay stay tuned to, to YouTube. I will be doing gavel-to-gavel coverage, and then I will be doing the um, podcast talking about the trial. And then if I can also do the quick bits, y'all have given such great feedback about the quick bits podcast. Thank you. It is a shorter version of what I cover. Um, We will see if the podcasts continue to be like what's going on in trial, or if I try to cover something else that I'm not covering because of trial in the podcast and then cover like what happened this week in the quick bits. I will I will just have to see how it goes and we will we'll give it a try. Look, new year, <laughs> new podcast. Emily, did you plan well for launching a new podcast that rounded up what you talked about every week and to then go into trial coverage and then also have this podcast? Did you think that through? No. No, I was just like, I want to do this. It seems like a great idea. And y'all have given me the best feedback on the Quick Bits podcast. So that's over on Quick Bits on YouTube. You can find Emily D. Baker Quick Bits over there, and you can just search the Quick Bits podcast, just Quick Bits on your favorite podcasting app, and you will see it come right up with my smiling face and purple hair. And that is a weekly short, well, short for me, <laughs> under 15 minutes, a short roundup of the things I covered on my live streams and on the podcast for the week. For those of you that want to stay up to date on what's going on in the cases, but you know, have lives that happen and maybe can't can't follow minute to minute on all of my coverage. So for all of you who are like, oh my God, I love your Instagram stories. They're so fast. The Quick Bits podcast is is absolutely for you. So thank you for downloading it. Thank you for subscribing to it. Thank you for going and finding that channel. All of those links will be down below. And most importantly, Thank you for being a Lawnard. As we get back into live trial coverage, it's going to get busy. And I appreciate you being part of this community and your support. So stay hydrated, raise a glass, y'all. 
Thank you for being a lawnard. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. May your grocery store not be out of maple syrup. Because seriously, WTF, I can't even predict what's not going to be at my grocery store anymore, but we're just going to keep track of it in the outros to the podcast. Emily, why do we talk about food so much? I don't know, but I do. (laughs) I like eating the same things over and over. When the grocery store is out of them, it throws my life into disarray. So with that, may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you. And I will talk to you in the next one. All right, y'all. It's it's trial time. It's 2023. It's live trial coverage. Let me know if it's your favorite. I enjoy live trial coverage too. Just, I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, it's time to go. Bye. Say bye. Emily, bye. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnard.